Hey everybody, welcome to the hashtag Get Real Woke Podcast. I am your host, Frederick D. Scott. And today I am going to be teaching you the secrets behind the PPP loan process. Now, before we get started, I need everybody to hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification, leave me a comment at the end of this video to let me know what you think about this content, and definitely make sure you hit the join button to join the hashtag Real Woke Live Chat community. All right, let's go ahead and get into this real quick. So here's the thing, right? I made this video and decided that I was going to come live and share this with you guys today because, you know, I've been watching the news and I kind of been tracking the PPP loan process. And what I have kind of begun to realize is the indictments are coming out. Unfortunately, people are getting in trouble. People are going to jail and that's not a good thing. And what I'm seeing is, you know, a lot of the people that are being indicted are predominantly uh, in minority communities, more specifically the African American community. So I thought, let me come on and have a discussion about the PPP loan process, teach people some of the inside knowledge that, you know, bank risk managers and, and senior bankers know uh, to help people kind of understand how this works. So that way, if I can at least save one person, then I feel like I've done my job, right? So here's the thing. Now, I wanna put out a disclaimer before I even begin to break all of this down. This video is not designed to teach you how to circumvent or get around or get over on the process. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This video, when you understand everything that I'm gonna break down today, I'm hoping that this video will deter you from trying to uh, do things that are, what I'll say, uh, questionable to, to secure loans from financial institutions. Because what I'm going to teach you today doesn't just apply to the PPP loan process, even though uh, I'm using the PPP loan process to demonstrate how, you know, financial risk management, banking and underwriting, things like that work. Uh, it applies to the overall lending process. And so I, I want to put that out there real quick. Now, let's jump right into this. So first and foremost, what is the SBA? What is the Small Business Administration? So the Small Business Administration's mission, uh, first of all, they're an independent federal agency, and their mission is to aid, counsel, assist, and protect the interests of small businesses. And the way they do that is they... Sometimes they put on seminars. Sometimes they'll send a representative from the Small Business Administration to attend a seminar. Uh, sometimes they uh, uh, teach courses. They also have certifications for small businesses, such as the SBA 8A certification. And they sponsor or facilitate, because you can use the words interchangeably in this situation, they sponsor or facilitate loans. And that's very important to understand because now we're going to get into what the SBA is not. Contrary to what you've heard, contrary to what you've read, even on the SBA's website, I'm here to tell you that the SBA is not a lender, period. They are not a lender. And I'm going to get into why as we get into this process. So the SBA is not a lender at all. Okay. So to understand what a lender is, you must first understand what Wall Street considers a lender. A lender is a depository taking institution, a bank. That is what we consider a lender. And when you look at various different federal laws and regulations, you'll find out that when they speak the term lender or when they're speaking of a bank, a depository taking institution, they call them lenders. And you'll notice that as you read along, right, while other types of financial institutions do lend, what we consider them on Wall Street are financial intermediaries. And there is a markedly different thing there. And I'm going to get into that now. So when I say depository taking institution, what I'm speaking to is a bank that either has a federal or state charter, FDIC insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are classified as lenders, 
these are lenders. Everyone else, for the most part, are financial intermediaries. There are some small exceptions to that, and we're not going to get into that in this uh, podcast episode today, but there are some small exceptions to that. But the takeaway I want you to, to have today is that a lender is a depository taking a, a depository institution, a deposit taking institution. So a good example of that would be Chase, Bank of America, TD Bank, um, you know, Carver Federal Savings Bank, uh, these types of institutions. They are lenders. Now, what is a financial intermediary? So a financial intermediary is an institution that they lend money. However, they're not lending money in the way that you think, right? So depository institution is a direct lender. And while a lot of financial intermediaries call themselves direct lenders, what they really have are warehouse lines of credit. And I'm going to get into that when I get into CDFI. When I talk about what a CDFI is, I'm going to talk about what I mean when I talk about warehouse lending and what warehouse lending is, right? Because there are different tiers of, of financial intermediaries. You have financial intermediaries that are that have warehouse lines uh, with banks and are able to lend on behalf of the bank, uh, the bank's money. And then you have uh, financial intermediaries that don't have warehouse lines and we norm we normally call them brokers, right? So we're thinking when you when you think of a broker, think about a mortgage broker, think about, you know, a mortgage broker. A mortgage broker is a good example of of what a a a non-lending financial intermediary would be. Okay. Now, with that in mind, if you've looked at the SBA website, and this goes to the heart of why the SBA is not a lender, right? Lenders, so when you, when you look at the SBA website, what you'll see is that they have what they call SBA approved lenders, right? So if the SBA, the Small Business Administration, at its core is a lender, right, then why do they need lenders? They can just lend the money themselves. And that's not to say that the SBA doesn't lend the money, right? So the SBA does lend the money in a very, 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 very limited circumstance. And it's called EIDL, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, which I'm going to talk about in a second year, right? So, but just because you are a one-off, very rare, sporadic lender under one specific, very narrow subset of legislation, that doesn't make you a lender. A lender is someone that does this every day. This is their day-to-day -day thing. This is what they do. They lend money. And as far as Wall Street is concerned, deposit-taking deposit institutions are your lenders. Everyone else is a financial intermediary, again, uh, with a very few exceptions. Now, so, so when we talk about <laughs> SBA-approved lenders, if you've looked at the PPP loan uh, process and you've looked at the SBA website for the PPP loan, you'll notice that they have some, uh, different classifications of, of SBA approved lenders. So I want to talk about these different classifications of SBA approved lenders, right? So the first one is the CDC or what we call a certified development company. Now, what is a certified development company? Okay, a certified development company is regulated by the SBA but they work with the SBA and participating lenders to finance small business. Okay, so right there, you know that they're not the ones that are lending you the money. They're the ones gathering the paperwork. They're the ones that are going to counsel you. They're going the ones that are going to talk to you, uh, put together your package, and they're going to read the SBA guidelines, and they're going to guide your loan package to an SBA-approved depository-taking institution, a lender, right, to get you approved. So that's very important because a lot of people think that, you know, and, and I want to be clear here that, okay, if I don't go to the bank, if I go to, like, let's say, uh, a CDC or, or someone else, I have a better chance of getting approved. That's actually not the case because all they're going to do is send it out to a, an institution at the end of the day. That, that's what they're going to do. They're going to send it out to a depository taking institution. They're going to send it out to a lender. Okay. And that lender is going to underwrite the file. And I'm going to get to underwriting as well in a second. Now, the second 
this second SBA approved lender, second type of SBA approved lender under the uh, SBA approved uh, lender pool here are what they call micro lenders. Now, it's funny to me that they use the term micro lenders because in the international community, a micro lender is a, <laughs> a lender who lends money uh, to developing countries or to uh, people that live in developing countries, uh, individuals, you know, small businesses, things like that. Uh, for the purpose of helping them develop something and and you know uh, develop a business that's going to be profitable, but they're very 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 small loans. And when I say very small loans, I'm talking about a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, five hundred dollars. These are micro lenders, right? But the micro lenders, what they call micro lenders under the SBA, are intermediary lenders such as Economic Development Corporation. Now. It's interesting when you talk about an intermediary lender, what is an intermediary lender? Well, then you're not a lender at all. Most economic development corporations are certainly not lenders. Again, they fall under the same category as, as, as your CDCs. They're going to talk to you. They're going to counsel you. They're going to gather your documentation. They're going to help you prepare to be approved for a loan. And then they're going to submit it to a deposit taking institution who is then going to underwrite the loan and make a decision on whether they want to approve you or not approve you, period. It's that simple. So, so far, all we've talked about are financial intermediaries. Now, let's talk about the CDFI or the Community Development Financial Institutions. Okay. Now, this is where it gets interesting, and this is where warehouse lending comes into play, right? So when you look at the, the list of approved lenders for the, the, CD, the CDFI subsection of SBA approved lenders, what you'll see there are deposit-taking institutions, but you'll also see other types of companies, some of which are also listed as, as micro-lenders as well, right? What that is is, okay, so some financial intermediaries have the ability to lend money right? They have the ability to lend money. Now, how do they get this ability to lend money? Where does this money come from? Now let's talk about warehouse lines. So when you are a financial intermediary that has the ability to lend money, what happens is you end up getting into an agreement with a deposit-taking institution who issues you a warehouse line of credit. And that warehouse line of credit is to be used specifically for lending on approved products that the lender has agreed to allow you to lend on per their guidelines, right? So you have a warehouse line. And there are two types of warehouse lines. Warehouse lines are either wet funded or dry funded. Now, what is a wet funded warehouse line? What wet funding is, is the, the deposit taking institution issues the financial intermediary a line of credit, but because the financial in intermediary has such a great track record, they're a very large company, they have robust policies and procedures in place, great underwriting, great risk management procedures, and have established a track record of, of lending money per the financial or deposit-taking institution's guidelines, they will allow them to underwrite the file in-house, approve the loan, and actually lend the money before the file is sent to the depository-taking institution. In dry funding, in a dry-funded warehouse line of credit, how it works is the financial intermediary can collect the documentation, they can do a preliminary underwriting of the file, but before the depository taking institution will release a portion of the line to fund that loan, the financial uh, or the depository taking institution, what they want first is the file. They wanna review the file themselves, be comfortable with the file, approve the file, and then at that point, they will then release the money to the financial intermediary to give to you. So when you talk about CDFIs, these CDFIs that you see that are not depository-taking institutions have warehouse lines in place with depository-taking institutions. And I'm going to explain to you why it is 
that the, the PPP loan and the SBA, the, the various SBA approval categories were even put in place for the PPP loan process. I'm gonna explain that to you shortly. Finally, you have MDIs, right? So this is the last section of, of the, PP, the SBA approved lenders for the PPP loan. You have what we call MDIs or minority depository institutions. A minority depository institution is a minority owned bank, right? Like a black owned bank, like an Asian owned bank, like a, a, a Spanish owned bank, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, why is it that this subsec is carved out? If they're a depository taking institution, just like Chase, just like Bank of America, why are they carved out specifically? Let me tell you. Okay, so a depository institution that is minority owned, the way they get their bank charter is a little bit different than the way everyone else gets their bank charter. So their bank charters are issued under what's called FIREA Section 308. FIREA Section 308 is a federal law that governs how bank charters are issued to minority banks. And so, of course, because they have special legislation, special regulatory requirements, special regulatory procedures for banks that are owned by minorities, they also give you a carved out subsect uh, all by themselves in the SBA approved lender uh, pool specifically, right? So if someone that is, let's say, an African-American and they want to only deal or go talk to an African-American-owned bank, boom, they can click on MDI, Minority Depository Institution, and they can find a bank that is a Black-owned bank that they can work with. And, and that's really it. That's really simple, right? So now, with that in place, why is it that there are so many different subsects and categories for SBA-approved lenders? when it comes to the, the PPP loan, let me tell you. Now, let's get into PPP versus EIDL, right? And let's talk about that a little bit from, from a loan processing standpoint. So the EIDL loan is an economic injury disaster loan. It is directly lent out by the SBA. Now, here's the interesting thing. PPP loans are, are, are lent out, they, they, they work directly with the bank. If you want a PPP loan, that has to go directly through a depository taking institution. Interestingly enough, if you look at depository taking institutions for other SBA loan products, you'll find that all the SBA approved lenders for other SBA loan products generally are depository taking institutions, right? So here's where it gets interesting. The PPP loan is only in place the legislation that was able to be enacted to even put the PPP loan in place was because there was economic injury to small businesses. EIDL, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, or the, the legislation and regulation that governs economic injury and disaster uh, initiatives and programs, right? is what is in place and what is allowed the EIDL to be activated and then further to provide additional economic assistance to small businesses via the PPP loan program. So what I'm telling you in short here is that the PPP loan is really an EIDL. It falls under the EIDL set of legislations and regulations. So why was it carved out specifically by itself and why is it a standalone product from the EIDL? Which, by the way, uh, under certain circumstances, you could have applied for both the PPP loan and the EIDL loan, right? So let's, let's just talk about that too. You could have done that. Now, why is it that the PPP loan process is carved out as its own special subsect of the EIDL uh, process? Let me tell you why. So what happened is, remember, I told you, the SBA, the Small Business Administration, is not a lender. They're not a lender. And what that means is that the SBA, because they only lend money, right, on EIDL situations, economic uh, injury, disaster, uh, emergency type fund situations for businesses, because those types of situations are so far and few in between, of course, the SBA does not have the infrastructure or the manpower to be able to take on a, a, a substantial influx 
of loan applications. They're not going to be able to underwrite them properly. They're not going to be able to do all of the checks quick enough. And so because of that, right, and because in the last, remember when they, they this is the second PPP loan draw, right? So there was a, a previous PPP loan uh, issued uh, before this one. Because the influx of applications was so massive, and because the SBA didn't have the infrastructure to be able to deal with that massive of an influx, what they did was this time they carved out the PPP loan because they expected a ton of people to apply. They carved it out specifically and handed it over directly to the banks as they traditionally do for other SBA loan products and allowed them to quarterback the project. Why? or at least quarterback the, the loan issuance process. Why? Because banks, depository-taking institutions, have the infrastructure, the manpower, the risk screening tools, et cetera, et cetera, to handle a large influx of loan applications. Why? Because they do this every day. It's why with traditional SBA loans, you go to an SBA-approved lender to get the loan because so many people apply for them. The SBA knows they don't have the infrastructure. So of course, letting an SBA approved lender handle it is a far better way to ensure the quality of the loans, the quality of the underwriting procedures, the quality of the risk management screening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to explain that to you because it's very, 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 very important when you deal with this right now. Let's talk about what the SBA is providing in this situation. I want to talk about what the SBA really is in the PPP loan process. Okay, so if you have SBA approved lenders that are the ones doing the lending, and if we've already discussed the fact that depository institutions, banks, are really the lenders at the end of the day, what, and, and now, now before I say this, I want you to know that Part of the Biden administration's plan here was to get this money into the hands of small businesses as quickly as possible. And why is that? Because small business accounts for a majority of the employment in the United States. And so because of that, if small businesses are going out of business, unemployment will continue to trend up. And so in light of that, the Biden administration wanted this money to get into the hands of small business as fast as possible, which is another reason why they went with the traditional route for this product and handed it off to SBA approved lenders. Now, with that in mind, it is important. It is extremely, extremely important that you understand that the reason why. So when, when, when a bank has to issue money quickly and we saw this in the mortgage market as well. When the banks have to issue loans quickly or give a lot of people loans or extend access, more access than would normally be extended on a loan product, in order for that to be able to work well, the bank has to loosen their lending guidelines. So that means the criteria and the level of scrutiny that they put behind a loan is a little bit less than it traditionally normally would be in a more restrictive economic uh, situation or a more restrictive loan product. And so with that in mind, why are the banks okay with loosening the guideline requirements for this loan and loosening the, the underwriting process on these types of loans? It's very simple. The PPP loan, because it is sponsored or facilitated by the SBA, what that really means is that the SBA is providing the banks a financial guarantee. What does that mean? What it means is that provided that the depository taking institution, the SBA approved lenders, provided that they have lent out and if they provided they have approved the loan and lent out the money in accordance with the guidelines that have been set for this specific loan product by the SBA, the SBA will issue them a financial guarantee, which means that if the loan is not eligible to be forgiven at a later time, right? If the borrower, because the loan wasn't eligible for forgiveness, has a difficult time paying it back and defaults on the loan, 
the bank doesn't lose any money because the SBA will reimburse them for the loan. However, if an SBA approved lender approves a loan and loans the money out, and that loan was not in accordance with the guidelines set by the SBA for the PPP loan process, then the bank, then the, the SBA does not issue the financial guarantee. The bank now has to eat that loan. They have to hold it on their books. They own it. And all the risk or the default is solely and squarely rest with the depository taking institution, the lender, the SBA approved lender, the bank. Right. So I wanted to share that with you, too, because I thought that was very, 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 very important. Now, with that in mind, remember, PPP loan process is, is, is the, the, the approval and the, and the loan issuance is being done by uh, depository taking institutions, banks. Right. At the end of the day, regardless of if the financial intermediary has the ability to lend because they have a warehouse line, at the end of the day, the buck is going to stop with the depository institution. They're going to be the ones that do the final reviews and checks. Now, I want you to know that these large uh, financial intermediaries that have warehouse lines of credit, they lockstep with their financial institutions, the ones that are issuing them the warehouse lines of credit. And what I mean by lockstep is they have the same processes, they have the same risk management team, um, risk management uh, procedures in place. They have all of that. So they, they are pretty much a bank without taking deposits, right? They, they look and feel from a lending standpoint, just like a bank. They underwrite the same way because they know that the best way to be able to ensure that their loans will be able to be taken off their books and, 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 and sold to the financial institution that gave them the warehouse line of credit so they can transfer that risk off their books, right, is to ensure that they're doing step for step everything that the, the financial institution or depository taking institution that has given them the warehouse line of credit, that they're doing the exact same things, right? So don't think that just because you go to a financial intermediary for the loan, that that means that there's some less uh, restrictive guidelines or conditions because that's not the case, especially with larger uh, financial intermediaries, uh, which these SBA approved lenders, uh, these SBA approved financial intermediaries, that's what they are. They're large. So they have very strong risk management protocols and procedures in place. So now, what happens if they, if a, if a, if a financial intermediary, and I just want to share this really quickly because I think this is very interesting and important as well. So if a financial intermediary, especially one that has wet funding, right? Let's say they uh, issue a loan and the bank doesn't like the loan once they underwrite it. Guess what happens? That financial intermediary has to now repurchase that loan, which means they have to take it back from the financial institution. They own it on their balance sheet now and the risk is all theirs, kind of the same way that it works with the SBA and the depository taking institutions. So that's why, you know, when you are a financial intermediary with any type of warehouse line of credit, you know, you're very meticulous about the way you underwrite your files because, you know, you don't want to end up like Countrywide. Countrywide was a financial intermediary uh, with warehouse lines of credit. And we saw what happened to Countrywide, right, when they got a little fast and loose. Uh, they, uh, who's Countrywide? Where are they? Oh, okay. Yeah, they're out of business. So that's what happens when that happens. You know what I mean? So, you, you know, the people learned a lot. Financial intermediaries learned a lot of lessons. Uh, uh, with the uh, the mortgage market crash. So, you know, let's be very clear about that. Now, <laughs> let's get into the bank side of this, right? The PPP loan process from a bank standpoint, right? Now, so before you even get into the actual underwriting process, the financial risk management process, right? Before you even get into that, right? So every financial institution, uh, especially ones that are regulated with the... the uh, the federal government, the state government, the SEC, uh, or like, so for example, when I say federal government, I'm speaking of the SEC, the Federal Reserve Bank, Department of Treasury, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when you talk about state, you're talking about the state's uh, Department of Finance. Any banks that hold charters or licensing with those are required to conduct what's called KYC and AML. Know your client and anti-money laundering. This is a requirement under the United States Patriot Act, Bank Secrecy Act. So let's cover KYC and AML. And again, KYC and AML stands for Know Your Client and Anti-Money Laundering. Okay, Know Your Client. What does that mean? 
That means that the bank has to make sure that the person that's coming in to open the account is actually the person that is the real person trying to open the account. And how do they do that? So technology has gotten uh, pretty advanced uh, from a risk management standpoint for financial institutions. So now, you know, financial institutions are using tools such as, you know, LexisNexis, uh, you know, World Compliance, uh, 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 Westlaw's People Check. They're using these types of tools and what they're doing. So when you put in your name, social security number, date of birth, address, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they're matching that those points of identity and they're getting a risk score for it. And if the risk score is high enough, then they believe that that is the real person. They approve it. If it's not, then either they'll deny it or they'll ask you to come into the branch, provide additional information, et cetera, et cetera. They also not only check your background that way, but they also weigh it against your credit profile as well. So that's the first step. KYC, right? Know your client. The second step is AML, anti-money laundering. They want to make sure that the funds... And this, again, goes to the Bank Secrecy Act and, you know, an ongoing effort to fight terrorism. So what they do is in AML, they want to know the source of funds. They want to know that where the money's coming from, how you earn the money, et cetera, is from clean legal sources. That's what they want to know. Right. So they, they have their checks and they and, and that's an ongoing thing. AML is an ongoing thing. Right. So AML with financial institutions just doesn't start and end at the account opening process. AML is something that is an ongoing risk screening uh, tool and an ongoing risk screening institution, uh, 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 institutional check. So for example, I'll give you a good example of what I mean when I say AML. Okay, so let's say that when you open your account, they ask you certain questions. They ask you, okay, how many deposits are, gonna be, are you gonna be making? Uh, what's the average denomination of those deposits? Uh, what is the, uh, how many wires are you going to be coming in, are going to be coming in domestically? How many are going to be going out domestically? They ask you the same question for international incoming and outgoing wires. They ask you the same question for ACHs. Uh, how many are going to be coming in? How many are going to be going out in the United States and same internationally? And based on those answers, when they open the account, your risk profile, your risk screening for that account is set up with those criteria in mind. And when you're a new account at a financial institution, you are what we call a high-risk account. So, you know, we monitor your account a little bit more heavily uh, than, than normally would be done uh, for a more seasoned uh, account that we've had a longer relationship with, say, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. We're still monitoring, not only clear now. We're still the, the, you know, this is an automated system. Uh, so, you know, it monitors all the time. But, you know... New accounts are, are monitored a lot heavily. The, uh, the risk screening protocols and procedures that are put into the system for new accounts are a bit different than, than more seasoned accounts with a financial institution. So let's say, you know, you said that, okay, you know, I have a restaurant. I'm going to be depositing $5,000 in cash on a monthly basis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Aside from having to go through all the paperwork to, to show why that's happening, right? Let's say, you know, you're three months in and then all of a sudden you deposit $10,000 into the account. Okay. At that point in time, right, you've, deposit, you've hit a, a, a risk threshold with the financial institution. And at that point, you're going to have to do what's called a currency transaction report. And, uh, you know, I could get into currency transaction reports, but that's not really the, the tone and tenor of this conversation today. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that. But you would have to do a special report called a currency transaction report, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's something that you can see. What happens if you said that you were going to be getting international wires in on a monthly basis for $5,000, right? Now, all of a sudden, you're getting uh, wires in for, let's say, $10,000, and this is going on, you know, over 60 days. You've, got the, the, you've gotten $10,000 in, in wires coming internationally. This is a change, your new account. And so because of that, the system is already automatically going to flag that account for a manual review. So that means somebody from the risk management team is now going to review your account, check what's going on, and make an assessment of if they think that this warrants further investigation, right? So as you can see, right, based on how you are managing your account, you can flag different risk screening uh, 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 mechanisms that you don't even know you're flagging, which is why communicating with your financial institution if there's going to be a change ahead of time before you make the change in your account is very, very important. Now, so when we get into the loan process, right? Because that's just from a, that was just KYC and AML. And I know you guys are like, dang, there's a lot to this, right? There is. So 
So now when you get into the loan process and you're getting ready to uh, and you apply for a loan with a depository taking institution or a or a large financial intermediary that has great risk management screening in place. So when you apply for that loan and that loan officer or that uh, that person that you talk to at the the economic development corporation or you know, community development corporation or whatever, right? That intermediary, when, when, when you talk to them, right? And they gather your paperwork and they send it over to the depository taking institution, the SBA approved lender, the bank, right? The first step in the risk management procedure is the underwriter. What is the underwriter's job? The underwriter's job is very simple. The underwriter takes all the documentation that you've provided and their job is to verify every single piece of it, make sure it's accurate, legitimate, and truthful, period. That's their job. And depending on the financial institution, how far they go, uh, how deep they go, uh, that's specific to each institution. Every institution has their own underwriting guidelines and procedures that they issue to their underwriters. And there's no like unified uh, underwriting set of guidelines and procedures that is specific to the institution period. Now, aside from the, the stated underlying guidelines and underwriting guidelines and procedures, you know, again, you know, there are underwriting, written underwriting guidelines and procedures, but every underwriter is different. So, you know, the level of scrutiny that's put on a loan application is dependent on the underwriter as well. I mean, if the underwriter is a lazy underwriter, then they may not do all the checks that they should do and would just approve the loan or recommend the loan for approval to the loan committee uh, without doing all of the checks, et cetera, et cetera, right? And this happens, right? This, this does happen. So there is some human error in the underwriting process. However, part of that risk management process now, remember I told you, is verifying every single document that you have. So when you come to the PPP loan process, it gets very interesting. So, you know, when you apply for a PPP loan, they ask you some very, very specific questions. It seems like a very simple form, but they're asking you some questions that are very easy to check. For example, what was your revenue over the last 12 months? How many employees did you have over the last 12 months? What was your annual payroll over the last 12 months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, check this out. Here's where it gets interesting. And this is why you have so many people getting in trouble with the PPP loan process. When you say, when you make an assertion on, on, or you make a statement on a loan application that's not true, that is first and foremost bank fraud. I want you to know that that's bank fraud. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about that later. That is bank fraud. And so now, when the underwriter goes to do their checks, one of the things that you're going to end up signing as a part of the loan process is what's called a 4506T. What is a 4506T? A 4506T is an IRS form that you sign that gives the lender slash depository taking institution slash bank the opportunity, the right to reach out to the IRS and get your records from the IRS so they can compare what you've submitted with what's on the IRS records. So now you have this business, you've applied for this loan. You said you've had 10 employees, but you really didn't have 10 employees. You say you had 100 employees, but you really didn't have 100 employees. Now, here's how an underwriter goes about doing that. They know that if you've had 100 employees over the last 12 months, if you've had 10 employees over the last 12 months, heck, if you've had one employee over the last 12 months, you would have had to pay payroll taxes to the federal government, to the IRS. And you would have had to have done that quarterly, right? Which means that when they reach out to the IRS to verify that you actually had employees by verifying your tax returns that you've submitted, the business's tax returns that you've submitted with what's on the IRS records, they're going to notice that there's a discrepancy immediately because you didn't pay payroll taxes. You didn't list employees. You didn't show any payroll, et cetera, et cetera. So one of two things is happening. Either A, you've, you owe the IRS some money, or B, which is more likely, you lied on your PPP loan application. Now what happens? Once the underwriter notices, remember, they're the first step, they're the first line of defense in the risk management screening process 
for a depository taking institution, a lender, financial intermediary, whatever you want to call it. Check this out. Once that underwriter discovers fraud or potential fraud, they notify the risk team. And the risk team now launches an investigation. So what the risk team does at the bank when they notice that there is fraud or suspected fraud, or if they've already identified a discrepancy in your file that is not true, because it's an IRS thing, it's federal, guess what they're going to do? So all financial institutions, right, that have bank charters are registered with the SEC, et cetera, et cetera, guess what? They are members of a, and there's a legislation for it, but the subsection, I'll tell you the subsection, is section 314A and section 314B information sharing system. And what is that? So section 314A is a, a where the financial institution gets a list from the Depart Department of Treasury uh, on a monthly basis. It's called an OFEC list. I'm sorry, I believe it's on a weekly basis. Uh, it's called an OFEC list. And what that OFEC list is, is all the people that you know, are, you're not supposed to be doing with, business with as United States citizens. But that doesn't really matter for you. What does matter, right, is Section 314B information sharing system. So these systems are monitored and controlled by FinCEN. And what is FinCEN? FinCEN is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. It is a collective of the FBI, the SEC, the ATF, the IRS enforcement agents, Department of Homeland Securities, all the alphabets you can think of, they're all members, right? And so what happens is, when you apply for that loan and you've lied, right? And mind you, the financial institution doesn't tell you any of this because they're not supposed to, right? What they do is file a SAR report. And what is a SAR report? A SAR report is a suspicious activities report. They put it in the information sharing system to notify the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network of potential fraud. And at that point in time, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network steps in, the relevant agency that this potential fraud applies to, steps in and begins an investigation. And if they can determine that there is fraud, they will what we call uh, send the information over to the Department of Justice with all of the evidence and a recommendation to prefer charges, which means to indict you. Right. So what a lot of people don't realize in this situation is you were in trouble long before you even knew you were in trouble. Here's the worst part. And this is why if you read the description on this on this podcast episode, I told you that just because you get approved for the loan doesn't mean that you're not in trouble. Here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is if somebody else has already gotten in trouble and your name has already come up and you're already part of an ongoing investigation and now you've just been approved for a PPP loan or in the process of getting approved, guess what? Once the bank notifies the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network may instruct him to go ahead and approve you and fund the loan. Why? Because it then adds to the loss amount. But we'll get to that when we talk in another in another section of this situation. So just because you've been approved, just because you've gotten the money, doesn't mean that you have gotten away with anything at all. So I want you to understand that. I want that to be very clear in your mind. You do not get away from the financial institutions. There are too many checks and balances in place to be able to check things out. There are systems upon systems upon systems. Risk management is a big deal. No bank wants to be defrauded out of money. So they, they spend millions upon millions of dollars making sure that the risk of that is low. So let's be very clear.
Now, what the underwriter may do, right? And this is where you, you, you dig yourself a deeper hole and don't even realize you've dug yourself a deeper hole. And some of you might, this may have happened to. So, you know, when I'm telling you these things, you're probably thinking like, oh my God, this is exactly what happened to me. Don't worry, I'm going to get into how you might potentially be able to fix this situation and keep yourself out of trouble later on. But sometimes the the underwriter will identify fraud, right? Potential fraud. And what they'll do is they'll notify the risk department and the risk department will come back and say, and this is before they file the SAR report, or they might file the SAR report and then tell the risk and tell the underwriter, hey, condition them for more documents. Now the underwriter will send out conditions and they'll say, hey, let me see your uh, last two years uh, tax return. Let me see your last two years of balance sheet statement of income and cash flow statement, right? So they'll, they'll, add, they'll start conditioning you for more documentation to see what you're going to do, right? And so some of you that have applied for this PPP loan, right, have actually went ahead and created more fake documents to send over to the financial institution and you're thinking you're actually getting away. You're not. They're just strengthening the proof of fraud to build the case stronger for the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network to come in and arrest you. That's it. You're not getting away with anything. I want you to know that because it's very, very important. Now, now that we've talked about all of that, and I'm pretty sure some of you guys are like, oh my God, your heart's probably beating in your chest. You probably want to boo-boo on yourself at that point. It's okay. Listen, we're going to talk about how you could potentially fix this in in a little while. But before we get into that, I want to talk about PPP loan forgiveness, right? So under the PPP loan, uh, under this PPP loan program, it is possible to have the loan forgiven. Now, so first and foremost, I want you to know that in order to qualify for that, first, you can apply at any time uh, during the, 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 the loan period, right? So they've issued you the loan, all of that. You can apply for forgiveness at any time during the loan period. And you can even apply up to 10 months after the maturity of the loan. What does that mean? Up to 10 months after the, the total loan becomes due and payable, you can apply for PPP loan forgiveness. But in order to be able to qualify for PPP loan for, uh, forgiveness, your employee and compensation levels have to have been maintained. So that's number one. That's step one. Number two, the loan proceeds are spent on payroll and other eligible expenses. And number three, 60% of the proceeds had to have been spent on payroll. Now, what are other eligible expenses, right? So other eligible expenses are like operating expenses, marketing expenses, things that help your business continue to remain a going concern. And not only do they have to be eligible expenses, they have to be reasonable expenses. Now, for some of you who think that you've gotten this loan and that you've got some creative way to where you're going to do what you want to do with the money, right? And then, you know, you're going to be able to show it as a creative expense. Let me stop you and let me help you out. So guess what? Let's say you decided, oh, okay, I can use it for operating, marketing, this, that, the third. These are all eligible expenses. I'm going to set up another LLC. I'm going to have that become a a contractor of my LLC and bill me for services, marketing expenses, and I'm going to pay that LLC, and then I'm going to be able to keep the money. And remember, you got to file taxes on that LLC at the end of the year, right? Remember, when you do that, that they're going to... uh, know who the owner is and know that, you know, they can discover the owner in, a, in an ongoing investigation by part of a subpoena, right? They're going to, so when that money comes into the bank, wherever it went, if they suspect any type of fraud, they can go in and subpoena all bank records and take a look at where that money went. They're going to contact the company. They're going to do all of that. It won't be hard for them to figure out that you also own that company as well and that you what they call money launder, Right. So don't think that you've got some slick way to get around the the PPP loan forgiveness point of this. You don't, okay? You don't. Don't do it. It's not worth it. You're going to jail. I'm telling you. Like, uh, so that's PPP loan forgiveness. Now, 60% of proceeds spent on payroll. These are reasonable payroll expenses. In fact, if your payroll expenses for one person are over $100,000, anything over that, above that $100,000 don't count towards payroll forgiveness. 
uh, or PPP loan forgiveness. I just I just want to put that out there for the record. So don't think that you're going to you know, say that you paid yourself $250,000 in payroll and think that that's going to fly. It's not. It's not. They're going to take a look at that. They're going to want to understand that. And they're not going to, 150000 of that ain't even going to qualify for PPP loan forgiveness anyway. So don't do it. It's not worth it. Now that we've gotten out of that, that, that out of the system, give me a second. So y'all give me a second here. Sorry about that, y'all. Y'all give me a second here. I had to kind of turn the page here, uh, make sure that, uh, you know, I uh, cover everything because, you know, I made a nice little outline for this. So I want to make sure I covered everything. So now let's talk about federal criminal law. Here's the reality. You ready? As of April 2nd, 2021, $445 million of PPP loan fraud has been indicted. $445 million of PPP loan fraud has already been indicted. I'm estimating that by the time they get through with indictments, right, that there'll be somewhere around $5 billion of worth of, of money that they've indicted on. Why do I say that? Because you had two draws under the PPP loan uh, program. You had the first one, and now you have this one. They're still digging through the first one. And they'd already identified like $238 billion of fraud in the first one. See, that's another reason why they, they kicked it to the banks this time, right? It's much easier for the banks to do the due diligence and report you. They got better programs and procedures and processes in place. So I just kind of want you to be aware of that, right? So when you, here's a scary thing, right? Here's a scary thing. Let's talk about conspiracy under federal law. So let's say, you know, and this is, and I want to talk about this because I've heard a lot of people in this, specifically in the African-American community say this, and I've heard a lot of talks about this, that, you know, somebody else filled out their PPP loan application and, you know, they, they was fired at doing it and got them, you know, however, you know, amount of, however much money they got them. Here's the, here's, here's the sad truth about that. You ready? If they did the loan application for you, how many other people did they do the loan application for? When one person gets arrested and goes to jail and they start looking at those numbers, those federal numbers, right? They're going to tell. Somebody going to fold and they're going to tell on the person that did, all, did their loan application. And then they're going to go get that person. It's called laddering. So the, the, uh, uh, the federal law enforcement bodies and the Department of Justice call this laddering. And what it is, is they, they arrest one person to get to another person to get to another person to get to another person to get eventually get to the top of the food chain and indict everybody. This is how conspiracy is built. So, okay, now, so now they arrested the person that did the loan application. Now they're going to apply that pressure to him and now, or her. And now that person is going to name everybody that they did a loan application for. And guess what? Now you're indicted. Now you're under investigation. The worst part about this is the fact that when you're in a conspiracy, you are not just charged with your loss amount. You're charged with the global loss amount. So let's say you got $150,000 in PPP loan, but the total global indictment is something like $30 million. You get charged for the full 30. Let's say you got approved for $150,000, but you applied for $5 million. They don't just charge you for the actual loss. They charge you for the intended loss, too. So that means that when your indictment comes out, if you're on the case by yourself, right, when your indictment comes out, it's not going to say $150,000. They're going to charge you for the intended loss amount, which is going to be the $5 million that you applied for. See, that's the, the crazy thing about federal government, federal, the, the federal criminal process. They can charge you for actual and intended loss. So I just wanted to share that with you as well. Uh, when you lie on an application, as I told you before, that's bank fraud, right? You can also be charged with wire fraud. Now, when you get that money and you spend that money lavishly and, you know, you're living your best life down there in Miami or Cancun or wherever you at, living your best life, you done bought you some Rolexes and a few, you know, Range Rovers and bought you some big old houses and all of that, you know. You out here balling, styling, and profiling, right? Check this out, right? 
So that's money laundering. Under federal law, they can charge you with money laundering. I just want to put that out there for the record, too. Now, in United States sentencing guidelines, when you are in trouble for a white-collar crime, right? Because that's what this is considered. This is considered a white-collar crime. So when you are in trouble for a white-collar crime, what they do is, right, they, they weigh your sentencing under the United States sentencing guidelines. And I, you know, encourage people to look up the United States sentencing guidelines. So it goes by your criminal history category. If you've ever been in trouble before, if you, you know, like had a felony, you now they give you a certain amount of points for felonies, certain amount of points for misdemeanors, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But one of the biggest sentencing factors, right, is loss amount. The higher the loss amount, the more time you can get. If there was identity theft involved, it's a mandatory two years, period. Mandatory minimum, two-year sentence. So I want you to be aware of the fact that, you know, there's a lot of ways to get in trouble doing this. There's a ton of ways to get in trouble doing this thing here. It is simply not worth it. There are a lot of clean, legitimate ways to make money where you don't have to stress where you don't have to look over your shoulder and worry about somebody kicking in your door, cuffing you up, dragging you out, and putting you in some sort of federal detention center uh, where you are awaiting trial and sentencing. It's not worth it. So now, the last part I want to cover, just the last part right here. Check this out. I want to talk to you about how you could potentially, potentially give this money back, Right? Because some of y'all done heard this conversation and y'all like, oh my God, I think I'm going to jail, right? And you're panicking. Some of y'all probably crying right now because some of y'all probably some really good people ain't never crossed the street the wrong way, ain't never spit on the ground or nothing. You ain't even, every time you dream about doing something wrong, you probably get scared, wake up in a cold sweat, right? So you're probably a really good person but somebody told you that they had a way for you to get some money for your business, right? And you don't know much about it. So you was like, okay, cool. You know, oh, you know, you can get, so that person probably whispered in your ear, hey, you know, you can get that PPP loan. Man, I can help you get like 250000 if you give me a cut, et cetera, et cetera. And you really wanted the money to do something good with your business, right? So at that point in time, what you did was you let that person help you out. And now you're hearing this conversation and you're wondering, am I getting ready to go to jail? So how do you give this money back? How is it possible that you might be able to give this money back? So first of all, which this is already expired, but there was a safe harbor provision uh, that allowed it closed May 18th, unfortunately, May 18th of 2021, which would have allowed you to give the money back, no questions asked. However, if you have not given the money back by then, you know, and you know, we're having this conversation on uh, uh, May 22nd, 2021, and, and you're ready to pee on yourself, uh, check this out. Then what you do, right? Get you a lawyer. I, first of all, I'm going to tell you, it's going to cost you more to get this money back than you probably got. So let's start there. Get you a lawyer. That's the first. You need a white-collar criminal defense lawyer. You need to be honest with them and tell them what's going on and retain them, right? And let them negotiate with the Department of Justice, negotiate, right, with the, the, the requisite... Uh, federal authorities to be able to help you give this money back in a way that doesn't get you in any trouble. Let them reach out to the financial institution. Let them talk to the financial institution's risk department. Oftentimes, you know, what they really want more than anything, right? And I'm going to tell you, uh, as, a, as someone who used to own an investment banking and advisory firm, one of the biggest things we want back is the money. If we can get the money back, right, then we're a lot more uh, willing to work with you, which means we might not you know, we may recommend that you don't get in trouble, things of that nature, or we may, you know, help you negotiate with the federal authorities to get you, you know, out of, out of the situation you're in, right? Other ways is sometimes what will happen is, you know, you're a good person, you made a mistake, you know, the federal prosecutor may, you know, take some sympathy on you and because you gave the money back, right? won't bring charges against you or they'll give you what's called a deferred prosecution agreement. What is a deferred prosecution agreement? A deferred prosecution agreement, right, allows you to basically, you plead guilty, you, uh, you agree to plead guilty, but they uh, agree to defer prosecution for a period of time, right? 
So they're going to defer prosecution for a period of time. They'll say, okay, listen, we're, we know you've admitted to doing wrong. You know, we've got this indictment. You know, we're going to go ahead and we're going to enter into a plea agreement and it's going to be deferred. Provided you stay out of trouble and don't do anything wrong for three years, we won't file, we won't move forward with this. It'll be like it never happened. It's called a deferred prosecution agreement, right? So you might be able to know to, uh, 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 negotiate something like that. But you're going to need a lawyer to be able to do all of these things, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this uh, podcast episode right here and you're, you're, you're facing this situation, get your lawyer, get your lawyer. Now, worst case scenario, right? The worst, the absolute worst case scenario, right? Here's what you can do. If you give the money back and they still want your head anyway because you're part of a conspiracy or whatever, at least, right, if you've given all the money back and they still decide that they're going to give you the felony anyway, right, and they're going to they're gonna charge you anyway, U.S. sentencing guidelines, if there's zero loss, you know, it. I think it goes up to like $150,000 before it breaks to the next uh, tier, right? Anything below, I think, I think. You know, I think it's about $150,000 and below. There's only six months in federal prison. That's the maximum time they can give you. Six months in federal prison. A judge may see it leniently and give you probation, right? So you've got some options. What if you've already spent most of the money and you got some of it, right? Give that back. The more money you give back, the less of a situation you'll have. The easier it is for a lawyer to work with you and work with the prosecution and, and the federal law enforcement agencies uh, to help you get into a situation that's going to work well for you, okay, or help you get out of the situation or, you know, get into a situation where you're going to have the least amount of issues, right? So that's that. Uh, you know, but that doesn't mean, you know, hey, man, I got like a million dollars. I'm going to just give them back a thousand. Yeah, they ain't going for that. They ain't going for that. If you're going to give it back, give it back. Give as much back as you possibly can. So that's my recommendation for the situation. All right. So I just wanted to have this discussion with everybody today. You know, I wanted to share this information because I think this is some important information that people needed to have on the secrets behind the PPP loan process. Hey, listen, I hope you all learned a lot. I thank you all for joining me today. Um, I hope you all had uh, that, that you were able to take something away from this that you'll be able to apply to the situation uh, to be able to make it better for yourself if you're in a situation or you've learned something that will deter you from trying to commit or get money out of the financial institution in a, you know, uh, criminal in, in a criminal way or a way that is uh, not in accordance with federal and state laws. I hope you learn that. Okay, so you know, I, I, I thank you guys again so much for joining me. Hey, listen, you know, if you like the content that I'm putting out, uh, and if you you know like me to continue to put out more content and things of that nature. You know, I ask that you show your love and support by, again, hitting that like button, hitting that subscribe button, hitting that bell notification, leaving a comment at the end of this video, and hitting the join button to join the hashtag Real Woke Live Chat community. All support that you provide goes towards helping me make better quality content for the community. It also allows me to roll out different projects, different initiatives that are for the benefit of our community, which is the goal. So definitely show your love and support. You know, if you become a hashtag real woke live chat community member, you get access to perks, benefits, discounts, uh, giveaways, our exclusive hashtag real woke uh, private Facebook community where you can network with like-minded individuals, thought leaders, incredible business experts that can help you get where you're trying to be. Because I am a firm believer that it takes a community approach to be able to help people succeed. Okay. You know, it takes a community approach for us to be able to build that equity that's going to last. So with that said, hey, listen, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Tomorrow is Sunday. So, you know, I got my hashtag get real woke Q&A session going on. And tomorrow I'm going to have a guest on by the name of Cedric Rowe Billard, who is going to be coming on and he's going to be asking me questions about LLCs. So I think that, you know, if you have questions about that, you had things that you thought about that you couldn't find answers for, definitely tune in to tomorrow's uh, podcast episode and I'll see you guys then. All right. So until tomorrow, I holla. <laughs>